0: All right, let's talk about Alfred Lord Tennyson. Tennyson was the most popular poet of the Victorian era. Uh, It's hard for, um, I think, for modern uh, readers to understand how popular poetry was in the 19th century. It was, you know, the, the, the poets were as big as rock stars are today. And so uh, Tennyson was able to make quite a good living off being the greatest poet in England of his day, or certainly the most popular, because poetry was as widely read, more widely read than novels were. Uh, The novel was a fairly new genre, and it was very popular and became increasingly popular with people like Charles Dickens, but uh, poetry was uh, even more popular back then. Uh, They they were bestsellers, Again, that's something that I think is hard for a 21st century audience to uh, to absorb. I'd like to start, uh, perhaps perversely, with the last poem, Crossing the Bar. Now, this is not the last poem that Tennyson ever wrote, but he did request that it be the poem to appear last in all collections of his work, and so the Norton editors have uh, uh, obliged him there. It was written very near the end of his life, but it just wasn't the very last thing that he wrote. And it's obviously a, a, a an elegy. It's kind of his own, it's a poem about death. Crossing the Bar. Sunset and evening star, and one clear call for me. And may there be no moaning of the bar when I put out to sea. But such a tide as moving seems asleep, too full for sound and foam. When that which drew from out the boundless deep, turns again home now a couple of things here um, your footnote tells you the, about the the moaning of the bar is the mournful sound of the ocean beating on a sandbar at the mouth of a harbor that's just nonsense that's not what it's talking about at all the idea now the the bar is a sandbar in the harbor uh, but the no moaning of the bar means that it, it, the bottom of the boat isn't going to scrape against the uh, the bottom of the, uh, the the bottom of the boat doesn't scrape on the sandbar and make that sound. It sounds like moaning, and of course moaning is very resonant in a poem of, about your your final passing, the kind of moaning or sorrowing uh, of, of the of a lost one. So the idea is that. He wants his passage to be easy and light. Uh, if, if the water is high enough, then the boat will just sail over that sandbar. It won't, it won't moan against the sandbar. It won't resist going out to sea. In the same way, he wants his soul not to resist going into eternity. Um, sunset and evening star. Uh, the, so the sun is setting, the evening star is rising. It's at that moment of twilight. It's not. It's not night yet, but it's about to be. Uh, this is a poem. It's all about that uh, uh, that liminal period, that, that in between period, uh, between day and night, between life and death, uh, at, at that particular moment and the kind of beautiful kind of seesaw image of the sun setting, the evening star, which would be rising at this very particular moment of dusk Um, and a clear call. He's being called out uh, and he will put out to sea and it will be a tide that moving seems asleep. Um, Again, if you think about, you know, sleep is one metaphor for death he will be asleep; he will die, but he will also be moving. He will be moving into the next life so as as moving it seems asleep, so it looks like he 's dead or asleep, but he 's actually moving into the next world, too full for sound and foam Now This relates to that image of of uh, the no moaning of the bar uh, the The tide is full it 's high enough. That uh, there's no sound. There's a, the boat won't scrape against the sandbar as it goes uh, past. There's no sea foam. It's, it's not uh, near call. It's just a smooth, easy transition. That's what he's asking for, is kind of a, a, a death that is a smooth, easy, effortless transition. And that which drew from out the boundless deep turns again home. Now, this is uh, using the image of the tide. He says the tide comes in, the tide goes out. And that's as, as easy a natural rhythm as the soul being born and the soul dying. And it turns again home. Uh, it, it's not leaving, it's not going away somewhere, it's returning home. The same way that the tide returns from the land back to the ocean, it's going home. So his soul uh, is going home twilight and evening bell, and after that, the dark. Now notice how the stanza 3, uh, the opening line, echoes the opening of stanza 1. Instead of sunset and evening star, we have twilight and evening bell. The sunset, twilight, evening a star and bell. Um, and again, it's this moment, this moment of twilight. And again, uh, uh, here we have the sound Uh, A clear call for me. Now we have the sound of the bell. And after that, the dark. So it's this moment of transition again between the light and the dark, between light and death. And may there be no sadness of of farewell when I embark. Now that's a nicely ambiguous, no sadness of farewell. For who? For the one saying farewell for the one leaving or for the ones who are staying and saying farewell to him of course it applies to both he wants this to be kind of an, uh, an, an easy uh, no, no sorrow, no tears, no sadness uh, when he embarks, when he goes on his final journey he says, for though from out our born of time and place the flood may bear me far I hope to see my pilot Face to face, when I have crossed the bar. So here, the end of it, there's, uh, from our our born, the boundary of time and place, the physical reality we have, the flood, this is the the sea, the image, and sea is a wonderfully resonant image in this poem, it's both an image of life and of death, which is appropriate because this is about the transition between life and death. And also, the sea is also, you know, image of the of the unknown. Um, it will bear him far away. And he says, "I hope to see my pilot face to face." Now, of course, that's God. The interesting thing is that a, a pilot is in in a harbor. The, the pilot boat takes the guides the ships out of harbor, you know, to the end, edge of the harbor, and then lets them go out to sea. So you wouldn't see your pilot face to face once you were out to sea. You'd only see it in the harbor. Um, so in a way, he, it, there's a kind of a, a, an irony there. Again, the, the the pilot that in our world would only be in the harbor for him, it will be a pilot who takes him into an even larger world outside of that. And again, with with the when I have crossed the bar. Uh, and all of these images, the sea, the, the, the bar, the pilot, the, sh- the the ship, all of these, ha- you know, take on almost mythical resonance. And one thing about the uh, the poem, about so many of, of Tennyson's poems, is just how beautiful they are to hear. Uh, I said that poetry was very popular in the 19th century. It was very popularly read. You would read poems out loud. That was... If you remember in Pride and Prejudice that they were so often playing music after dinner to amuse themselves, well, that was common. It was also very common to read or recite poetry and so the fact that uh, Tennyson's poems sound so wonderful out loud is one of the reasons that he was so popular you know it so- it sounds good it was it was they were fun to say. Let's turn now to Tennyson's poem, Ulysses. Uh, Ulysses is the Roman name for the the Greek hero Odysseus, the, the hero of the Odyssey, uh, famous for his great voyages. He was a, a a the the clever soldier at the at Troy, who when he was heading home was under a curse from the gods, and it took him ten years to get back to his home. And eventually he did after many fabulous adventures. But Tennyson doesn't talk about any of that. He's talking about the very end of his life, uh, and there's a story in Dante's Inferno that shows Ulysses going on a final voyage. Uh, he's kind of an image of, of, of arrogance and pride. Um, but here, let's look at uh, Ulysses. Now, this is a dramatic monologue. Uh, we'll be seeing quite a bit more of these when we look at uh, Browning next time. But a dramatic monologue is all in a character's voice. So this is Ulysses speaking. It's not the poet speaking. It's the voice of a character. And and we can see and deduce some interesting things about the character from a dramatic monologue. It little profits that an idle king, by this still hearth among these barren crags, matched with an aged wife... I meet and dole unequal laws into a savage race that hoard and sleep and feed and know not me. So uh, we see his dissatisfaction, and he's back, he's king, he, he's been ruling his, his country, but uh, it, it's, it seems it's not satisfying. He's he's giving the laws to this these savages who don't really appreciate it, and he has an, an aged wife, that's all he says about her. She's old. And what he really wants to do, we find out in line six, I cannot rest from travel. I will drink life to the lees. So he, he wants to be out voyaging again. This is a guy who's again spent, you know, over ten years of his life on this voyage trying to get home. He gets home, all he wants to do here is go back and travel some more. Um As all times I have enjoyed greatly, have suffered greatly, both with those that love me and alone, on shore, and when, through scudding drifts, the rainy Hyades vexed the dim sea, I am become a name, for always roaming with a hungry heart, much have I seen and known." So he's thinking back, you know, but whether he was with people or alone, the, the thing that made him happiness, that made, made him drink life to the to the lees, to the very end, was the, was the wandering, the traveling. And now he says, I am become a name. I'm just a name. I'm not uh, doing anything. Uh, I have just a reputation. And he says, um, much have I seen and known. Cities of men and manners, climates, councils, governments, myself not least, but honored of them all, and drunk delight of battle with my peers far on the ringing plains of windy Troy. So he's remembering being a soldier at, at the Great Trojan War. I am a part of all that I have met. So he's the sum of, he's thinking back all these expe- these wonderful experiences that he has, and he, they're all a part of him. He's part of them. Yet all experience is an arch where, where through gleams that untraveled world whose margin fades forever and forever when I move. So there's this is a wonderful image that he's, his experience is an arch that he's going through, and it, it gleams. Th- through it, he can see this untraveled world. So all of his travels only make all the places he hasn't traveled more tantalizing to him they they're forever and forever how, however far he moves, there's always more for him to go see this how dull it is to pause to make an end, to rust unburnished, not to shine in use and he's he, what he loves is the is the journeying is the process is the odyssey um being still, pausing, being in one place, even when it's his home, just will never satisfy him. Um as though to breathe were life. This I don't want to just be breathing, I want to be doing something. Life piled on life were all too little, and of one to me little remains. But every hour is saved from that eternal silence, something more, a bringer of new things, and vile it were, for some three sons to store and hoard myself, and this grey spirit yearning in desire to follow knowledge like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought now there again the, the way he uh, the, the imagery of, of what he wants to do his is desire this yearn, this spirit yearning the desire to follow knowledge again that sense of moving knowledge is like a sinking star beyond the utmost bound of human thought Again, it's like that through that archway. It's forever receding. You, you know, you can't ever catch a star. You're just always traveling after it. This is my son, my own Telemachus. So he's mentioned his aged wife. Here is his son. And basically, in this in this stanza, he says, uh, uh, "You know, I'm going to leave you, my son. He can take over. He'll be king now. He was going to be king anyway. Yeah, he'll he'll take all of uh, all of this this uh, dull work that I don't want to do." Um, now. We can see, I think, the uh, thing a dramatic monologue can do is it can allow the reader to be critical of the speaker in a way when the speaker himself is not self-critical. Um, and I think we can see his, uh, his kind of dismissal of his wife. He's kind of uh, passing this off to his son. He doesn't, it's not his family that he loves. It's his own uh, adv- adventures. He wants to be out there in the world. Um uh, you know, he says, "He works his work; I mine." So you know th- this is you know this is fine for Telemachus. I want to be out there doing. So the final verse paragraph starts line forty-four. There lies the port; the vessel puffs her sail. There glooms the dark, broad sea. My mariners, souls that have toiled and wrought and thought with me that ever with a frolic welcome took the thunder and the sunshine and opposed free hearts, free foreheads. You and I are old. Old age hath yet his honor and his toil. Death closes all. But something ere the end, some work of noble note, may yet be done. Not unbecoming men that strove with gods. So now... He's kind of dismissed his wife and his child, but his fellow mariners, his fellow travelers, that's who he has the most to say about. Again, this tells us a lot about him. That's who he relates to. That's who he wants to be with. And even though they're old, even though he knows that they're near to death, they still can do something great. The lights begin to twinkle from the rocks. The long day wanes. The slow moon climbs the deep moan round with many uh, the deep moans round with many voices. Come, my friends, so now the mariners or his mariners, are his friends. Um, tis not too late to seek a newer world. Push off and sitting well in order, smite the sounding furrows for my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the paths of all the Western stars until I die. So he's going on this, uh, he knows this is a last voyage. He just doesn't want to die. You know, a, a man not doing anything kind of sitting in his, in his house, uh, uh, waiting for the end to come. He wants to sail beyond the sunset. Um, it's interesting. Uh, parallel with the imagery of crossing the bar it may be that the gulfs will wash us down it may be we shall touch the happy isles and see the great achilles whom we knew so he's saying look we may get the the, the we may get washed away the gulfs will wash us down and when he says the the happy isles um He's talking about paradise, about the afterlife. So he's saying, look, we we may go to death and see Achilles, the great hero of the Trojan War in the afterlife. Though much is taken, much abides. And though we are not now that strength which in old days moved earth and heaven, that which we are, we are one equal temper of heroic hearts, made weak by time and fate, but strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. So it ends with this, this kind of acceptance of, yes, there we're limitations, we're, we're old, we're mortal, uh, but we still have the, the will and seeking, striving, finding, not yielding. Those are all of the things that he values. Uh, That's what, you know, Ulysses life in in mythology was about. And so Tennyson imagines him since that was his character. He was somebody who did love to seek and strive and find and not to yield. He wouldn't be happy, settled down. Uh, So he gives him this last voyage and, uh, Tennyson would have expected his original readers to know that, uh, again, in Dante's Inferno, uh, it tells the story of how Ulysses sailed on this, this final quest and was killed. He is going to his death. But he makes it, again, at just as in Crossing the Bar, death becomes not this uh, sad tragic, regretful thing, it becomes kind of noble and heroic. And they're they're going out uh, doing what they love. Uh, Tennyson, as much as any poet, was really obsessed with death. Death is one of, I think, the central themes of poetry, one of the main recurring themes. And it was particularly personal for Tennyson because his very best friend, Arthur Hallam, died when they were both in their twenties and that haunted Tennyson all his life. One of his great poems in memoriam is a long philosophical discussion about fate and and death uh, and is very much inspired and dedicated to the, the the great friend that he lost early in his life. Uh, And so the idea of, of death uh, recurs in Tennyson's poem more than in most poets Uh, Let's look at another example of his poetry, Tears, Idle Tears. Tears, idle tears, I know not what they mean. Tears from the depth of some divine despair rise in the heart and gather to the eyes in looking on the happy autumn fields and thinking of the days that are no more. Now think of just the phrase, idle tears, Idle means pointless. There's no reason for them. And he says, "I know not what they mean." I'm I'm crying and I don't understand why. But then he says, "It's tears from the depth of some divine despair." That's another uh, wonderfully ambiguous phrase. Is the is it a despair that it comes from God? A divine despair, or is it is despair an adjective meaning it's, it's divine an adjective meaning that it's a a wonderful, a divine an excellent a a, a lofty, despair. Uh, it, it could be both, but if it's a divine despair, how can it be idle or pointless? And it rises in from the heart to his eyes, and he sees the autumn fields. Autumn, is the time of the of the the world moving on towards winter. Uh, we think of Geet's uh, poem, to, uh, his uh, Ode to Autumn. And what he's thinking of, what causes these tears, what causes this, the source of this divine despair is the days that are no more, all of the past that he's lost. Fresh as the first beam glittering on a sail that brings our friends up from the underworld. sad, As the last, which reddens over one that sinks with all we love below the verge. So sad, so fresh, the days that are no more. So here are two, again, descriptions of these tears. First, they're fresh, and a beam that glitters on a sail, so that you see the the beam of sunlight on a a sail. And what is it doing? It's bringing our friends up from the underworld. So here's a boat that's bringing us... So he's thinking about memory, remembering the fresh the fresh memories of those people that are gone to us. But then it's also as sad as that last beam, which reddens, not glittering, but reddens over one that sinks with all we love below the verge. So the image of the boat rising up, coming to us, and the image of the boat sailing away, going over, going down uh, below the verge, below the horizon where we can see it. It's so the, they're both sad and fresh, the days that are no more. Ah, uh, sad and strange, as in dark summer dawns the earliest pipe of half-awakened birds to dying ears so another image for these uh th- these days that are no more the, the source of these tears it's sad and strange and this is dark summer dawns that's another contradiction the, the dawn should be bright especially in summer but these are dark summer dawns and half-awakened birds their songs to dying ears um so this is—it's like the last thing you hear as the the the, uh, the the is the birds to your dying ears, when unto dying eyes. So we have both dying eyes and dying ears. To dying eyes, the casement slowly grows a glimmering square. So sad, so strange, the days that are no more. So this is a moment of you know experience. The last sounds you hear, the last sight you hear, Uh, but it also, it sounds like, you know, this is dawn. The images are of of waking up, you know, as you wake up in the morning and you kind of half hear the birds. As your eyes slowly open, you see a a, a glimmering square of light in the window. But these are seen not as uh, beginnings, but as endings, so again, all of these contradictions, the divine despair, fresh and sad, sad and strange, uh, beginning and ending, all of that is in this, this divine despair and these idle tears. They are as dear as remembered kisses after death. Uh, now, is that remembering someone that you kissed after the person you kissed was dead? Or is it, remember, kisses after you're dead? Uh, Again, it's wonderfully ambiguous. It could be both or either. And sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned on lips that are for others. So, kisses that are sweet as those by hopeless fancy feigned on lips that are for others. So now... It's not even a real kiss. It's not even a kiss of somebody who's dead. It's a kiss that you were imagining, that you wished for, but somebody who's never going to kiss you. You imagine kissing that special someone that you want to, but they are for others. You're never going to have that kiss at all. Deep as love. Deep as first love and wild with all regret. So first love both, you know, kind of wonderfully exciting and terribly sad, wild with all regret. Oh, death in life, the days that are no more. So it ends with yet another paradox and contradiction—a death in life. Now, what what you can see Tennyson doing here, he's um, doing much the same thing that we talked about with uh, with Keats of negative capability. Uh, what are, what is this feeling like well it's it reconciles it it's two opposite things at once it's several opposite things at once it's divine and it's despairing it's fresh and it's sad it, it's like waking up and going to sleep it, it it's uh um uh, wonderful and terrible it's a death in life um and that's i think very typical of of the kind of complexity that Tennyson gets into his poetry. Let's look now at the uh, the first poem in the Norton Anthology, uh, one of uh, Tennyson's earliest poems, uh, Mariana. And it has a, a, a quote from Shakespeare's play Measure for Me- Measure, Mariana in the Moated Grange. Now, Mariana is a minor character in the play, and she was going to be married to this man, but he rejected her. And she sits in this, uh, in this, this grange, this little uh, uh, meadow with a moat around it, a moated grange, and sings a sad song. So that's how, uh, and, and Tennyson would have expected, you no, know, you know, most of his readers would have caught the Shakespearean allusion. Uh, not everybody today reads Measure for Measure. You know, more's the pity. Go out and read it. Um I want you to think about what he does here with creating a sense of mood in his descriptions just look at this opening stanza with blackest moss the flower plots were thickly crusted one and all the rusted nails fell from the knots that held the pear to the garden to the gable wall the broken sheds looked sad and strange Unlifted was the clinking latch, weeded and worn the ancient thatch upon the lonely, moated grange. All of those details, black moss, thickly crusted, rusted nails, knots, broken sheds, sat, you know, all of that, the clinking latch, all of those details give a sense of the kind of forlornness. It's very concrete, very specific um, and it creates the mood and the feeling just purely from the description. And then we get the refrain, which is slightly varied throughout the poem. She only said, "My life is dreary. He cometh not." She said, "She said, I am a weary, a weary. I would that I were dead." So here's her her refrain, that you know things are dreary. Why? He, he, he's not coming. The man she loves is not coming. And in the next stanza, we get into her tears fell with the dews at even. Now, here he's very explicitly linking the lady with her environment. Her tears fell with the dews at even. So the dew on the grass and her tears are the same. Her environment, the sad environment around her, and her internal sorrow are the same thing. Her tears fer- fell ere the dews were dried. She could not look on the sweet heaven, either at morn or eventide. So she can't even look up at heaven, uh, either at morning or night. After flitting of the bat's when thickest dark did trance the sky, she drew her casement curtain by, and glanced athwart the gloaming flats. Again the the, the bats, the the, the the gloaming flats, all of the environment echoes and mirrors her own inner despair. And now she says, The night is dreary, not just my life is dreary, but the night is dreary, and continues the refrain. Um She goes on, upon the middle of the night, waking, she heard the night-fowl crow. The cock sung out an hour ere light, from the dark fin, the oxen's low. The oxen's low came to her without hope of change. Now here, she's hearing, it's not just the physical environment, but the sounds she's hearing, the the, the animals out there, the night-fowl. The the, the cock that crows, so she's been up all night, she hears the cock crow at sunrise, and she hears the oxen low uh, without hope of change. None of these sounds, usually, you know, the sound of the the, the cock crowing at dawn is supposed to be one of hope, but for her, it's not. It's sung an hour air light, so it's singing in the dark. Uh, There's nothing triumphant about it, and the oxen lowing in the fields, they're just there without hope of change. It's, you know, really depressing. In sleep, she seemed to walk forlorn till cold winds woke the gray-eyed morn about the lonely moated grange. Now, in sleep, she seemed to walk forlorn. Does that mean that she's dreaming? In sleep, she seemed to walk? Or is she walking as if she were sleepwalking? Again, Tennyson is typically ambiguous about that. It could be either or both. Um, And it goes on, again, the the way it describes all of the features of her environment. The the next stanza, the blackened waters, the marish mosses, the poplar, all of this. Again, all of this is, um, you know, telling her life is dreary. Um, You know, the, the, the next stanza, the night is dreary. We've got the moon and the shrill winds. Uh, the, the shadow of the poplar fell upon her bed across her brow. So there again, it's a physical external thing, but it's also symbolizing an internal shadow. It's across her brow, both physically and psychologically shadowed. And we get the in the the dreamy house. Uh, we hear the again that these creatures: a blue fly, a mouse. Old faces glimmered through the doors. Old footsteps trod the upper floors. Old voices called her from without. Uh, she, she only said, my life is dreary. Um, so all of these old things, it's a dreamy house, you know, the hinges creaked. All of this kind of very specific detail which reflects her own internal sadness. And then look at the, the final stanza. The sparrow's chirrup on the roof, the slow clock ticking, and the sound which to the wooing wind aloof the poplar made, did all confound her sense. So here we get three sounds. The sparrow, the it's, it's chirrup it's making, the clock ticking, and the sound of the the poplar tree, which we've already seen casting its shadow upon her. Um, and the which the then the wooing wind uh wooing again makes the sound of the swish of the wind, but also to to woo somebody is to try to make them love you, and this is this wooing wind aloof is not trying to make anyone love her, and all these confound her senses, but most she loathed the hour when the thick moted sunbeam lay athwart the chamber and the day was sloping toward his western bower so the the worst time there's a thick moted sunbeam again that you can see the see the light of the sunbeam and the sunbeam lays athwart that is crosswise against the chamber and the day was sloping Again, there's a kind of this slantwise, the slant of the light, this, uh, being athwart, sloping towards the western bower. So it's going down to, to, to night again. And we get a, a variation on the refrain at the end of the poem. Then she said, before it was always she only said, then she said, I am very dreary. Now, before, it was always something else. My life is dreary, the night is dreary, the day is dreary. But she says, I am very dreary. He will not come. And that's different from he cometh not. That's he, He's not here yet. But now she's saying, looking into the future, he will not come. She said. She wept. Now, before, it was just she said, but now it's she wept i am a weary a weary oh god that i were dead now i would that i were dead and oh god that i were dead it's it's an intensification so the poem ends by just those tiny verbal alterations in the refrain it becomes much more emotionally heightened much more emotionally powerful in the uh, at, 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 in the conclusion there as she's, you know, the the light is going down athwart to another night time, and this poem is an excellent example of the way that uh, Tennyson was able to create tone and mood through his language and imagery, and just sometimes even just the sound of the of the uh, uh, the poetry. Uh, very very powerful. The final poem I'd like to look at from Tennyson is. Uh, very different in tone and style from the ones we've been looking at. But it represents another kind of poetry he did, and this was uh, comments on current events. This was a very famous one, The Charge of the Light Brigade. This was an incident in the Crimean War where a, uh, a British cavalry unit was sent into uh, to battle and just mowed down, destroyed. Um, and here is Tennyson's tribute to them half a league, half a league, half a league onward, all in the valley of death, rode the 600. Forward the light brigade, charge for the guns, he said, into the valley of death, rode the 600. So uh, that biblical phrase, you know, the valley of death, and the wonderful, uh, you, you can almost feel the gallop of the by the repetition of half a league, half a league, half a league onward, uh, the, the cattle... The cattle, the cavalry, galloping towards their death. Forward, the light brigade. Was there a man dismayed? Not, though the soldiers knew someone had blundered. Theirs not to make reply. Theirs not to reason why. Theirs but to do and die. Into the valley of death rode the six hundred. Now you—you you may have heard that, you know, ours is not to reason why ours is but to do it or die that's, that's comes from Tennyson um, he's saying, he is imagining, they, even if they knew that it was a blunder, they went and did their duty anyway cannon to the right of them cannon to the left of them, cannon in front of them, volleyed and thundered stormed at with shot and shell, boldly they rode and well Into the jaws of death, into the mouth of hell, rode the 600. Uh, Now, just the, again, the kind of the beautiful uh, repetitions that he gets in here uh, is part of what makes this poem something that, you know, kind of little snatches of it are still embedded in our our popular language. Um, And look at the, the way he ends the poem when can their glory fade? Oh, the wild charge they made. All the world wondered. Honor the charge they made. Honor the light brigade. Noble 600. Now, this is, uh, you know, you might agree or disagree with his uh, military or political assessment of what's happening, but uh, Tennyson was certainly good at making the point with poetry. Um this is a, a poem that feels exciting and it gives just the short clipped lines uh, and the the use of repetition, uh, the use of these very resonant phrases that still, as I say, still resonate with us today, uh, gives you an idea of the kind of power that his poetry had. And, even when it wasn't on some kind of vast universal theme of death and despair and what we've seen in some of his other poems, even when it was on, uh, you know, current events, he was still able to uh, to fashion that kind of a uh, poetic utterance. Uh, it, it gives you some idea of the wide range, and we're really not looking at all at the full range of his poetry, um, Some of his most important work was uh, In Memoriam, the poem I mentioned earlier, or The the Idols of the King, which was his version of the story of King Arthur. Um, These were much longer poems that were also very, very popular in his time. Uh, But you can see uh, just the craftsmanship that uh, Tennyson was able to bring to his poetry. Next time we'll be talking about another important poet of the Victorian era, Robert Browning. Now, almost all of Browning's poems are dramatic monologues. That is, they are character... They're like character soliloquies. They're the character talking himself. And I want you to think about how Browning makes use of that, how he allows the character to speak for himself, but at the same time allows the reader to see through the character, to see things that maybe the character himself is not aware of about his own personality, uh Browning is really a master of the of the dramatic monologue and the, the kind of dramatic irony that you can get in, in writing them. So the poems that I'd like you to read for next time are Porphyria's Lover, My Last Duchess, The Bishop Orders His Tomb at St. Praxed's Church, Fra Lippo Lippi and Andrea del Sarto. Uh, now some of these are, are quite long Uh, But again, think of them as, as soliloquies, like you were reading a Shakespeare play. What do they tell you about these characters? All right, well, I thank you for your attention, and I will talk to you next time.